Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning. Good morning. Yes, thank you. Thank you. The crowds are going crazy. I'm Greg Boyd, teaching pastor here at Woodland Hills, and I want to welcome all of you. So glad that you're joining us here this morning. Uh, I can't be present with you, like the Apostle Paul told the Corinthians, but uh, I'm with you in spirit. And there's a real unity that comes with that. And you're with me in spirit uh, as you're listening to this message and as related to communion. I like to imagine the other folks who are watching this and just kind of picture them in your mind and sense the unity that we have uh, in the body of Christ that is expressed as Woodland Hills Church. We're going to be taking communion later on, as Shauna said, and I imagine some folks, if you come from certain traditions, as I did, uh, we taught that the, the elements are sacred and, and they, have to have, they kind of have to be special. So the idea of just grabbing a cracker and water or grape juice or whatever you have might seem kind of uh, sacrilegious. And I, I get that. I totally get that. But here, here's the thing. Uh, you know, they didn't prepare for communion when they had the Last Supper. They were just having a supper. And then Jesus said, hey, take the bread and take the cup. It was what, what was before them. Um, and I think the ordinariness is kind of the point. It's totally ordinary bread, totally ordinary wine, uh, but Jesus infuses it with this incredible significance, and that's what God always does. He takes ordinary things, ordinary people, and uses them and breathes sacredness into them. So anything will do uh, if your heart is to represent uh, the body and blood of Christ. All right. So we're in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, and we're up to verse 6. Uh, Matthew 5, 6, and it, it says this, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. They will be filled. There's another verse I want to just uh, mention briefly before we get into this, and we won't get to either of these verses for about another 15, 20 minutes, but just put them in the cranium there. In 1 John 5, 21, the last verse of 1 John, he ends by saying, Beloved children, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And you're probably wondering, what does that have to do with blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness? But you'll see here in a little bit. I want to start off with this. Um, you know, when I was 13 years old, I, I and a buddy hitchhiked down to downtown St. Paul. Uh, if you're 13 years old, don't ever do that. In fact, it's not a good idea to ever do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I, don't take my example here. I have a 13-year-old grandson, Soul, and I, when I see him, I think to myself, I was that age when I hitchhiked downtown St. Paul. It was just, I was, I'm lucky to be alive. Uh, so, so, and we were going downtown St. Paul, this friend and I, uh, we played in a band together, and we were going for nefarious purposes, and that's all I'm going to say about that, because my, kid, my grandkids might be watching that, but don't do that either. You know, if you don't know what the word nefarious is, don't do it. But I didn't have enough supervision, I guess, and so we went downtown St. Paul and uh, went to music land and spent the day doing things. Uh, by the late afternoon, we were really, really hungry, and we didn't have very much money because we did buy some things. Um, and, uh, but my friend had heard about this new chain that was coming out, new, new food chain. Uh, this is like 1970, right? Uh, and it was the White Castle. It was the White Castle. I thought the name was really strange. Why would anyone name White Castle? And they build them all as White Castles. But he said they sell burgers there back in those days for 10 cents. For a dime, you can get a burger. And, and so we've headed, we've headed over there, got there. Um, and we found out why they only cost a dime. It's because they're only about the size of a 
maybe silver dollar if that. And they have all sorts of holes uh, po poked them. So they're like little wafers. But they put a lot of onions on it. There's not much meat there. And there's a whole lot of grease. But it tastes great. So we go there and uh, we, we started off with, with four. We got four piece. And they tasted great. But we weren't yet satisfied. So we went back and got four more. And it tasted great. Uh, now, I don't think we were really hungry after that, but we, I had 40 cents left over, and you know, why you have that in your pocket? So we went and got four more. We each had four more apiece, and it tasted great. We felt satisfied for 15 minutes, maybe, 20 max, and then it began to feel funny on the inside. I mean, I hate it when you can feel things going on in your stomach, and it starts to make noises. Uh, uh, I, I, then we begin to get cramps. I, it was bad. Uh, it was, you know, when you're 13, you don't know a thing about how the intestines work and what, what kind of grief it causes your intestines to pour large amounts of grease in at one time. Uh, so it, we were learning fast. So we, we had to go to the bathroom really, really bad. And so we were desperately looking around at stores that have bathrooms in them, finally going to Macy's and uh, take care of business there. And as I was sitting in there on the toilet in grief, I was sweating. I think I must have had grease poisoning or something. Um, we were also next to each other in the stalls, and so we were also laughing because it was so gross. Uh, it was laughing at each other. It was, but I wondered to myself, how could something that tastes so good going in be so nasty coming out? Uh, how could it do such damage in your stomach? It seemed like it was so good. Now, that's kind of an extreme example of, uh, of, of this, but uh, we all do things like that, don't we? Or at least a lot of us do, where you go to the movie theater, for example, and, and, and you, know, you smell the popcorn, and it smells so good, and so you get a big bucket of popcorn, and you get all that butter on it, you know, and it's great for your heart. And you put all that seasoning salt, which is also really good for your blood pressure. And then you scarf the thing down, and it's so good, especially if you have like one of those cherry freezies next to it or something. Uh, and then when you get done with it, halfway through the movie or towards the end, whenever, 15 minutes later, maybe not even that, you feel, oh, why did I do that? Have you ever asked that question after a gross meal? Why did I eat that? Why? It's, oh, you feel gross. It's like you have a bowling ball in your stomach. It doesn't feel much better on the other end of it either. So we do that. It just goes to show that your taste buds, my taste buds, are not reliable guides to what is healthy and what's not. If you want to have a meal that you feel good about afterwards... Uh, and if you want to be on the road to health, uh, you can't let your appetites have free reign, right? Uh, you know, a, a, a few sliders now and then, we used to call those white castles, and now I know why, uh, uh, gut bombs or, or grease bombs or sliders is the one that we use most frequently because they slide right through you. <laughs> Safe at first. Nice slide. You don't slide in the first, do you? Safe at home. Yeah, you slide right in there. It's like, it's nasty. Um, but see, at some point, a few, few of those things aren't going to kill you. And, and having popcorn now and then is, is, is a delight. But at some point before you get to 12 burgers, and at some point before you get to the bottom of that bucket, there needs to be a part of your brain called the reason that says, hey, you've had enough. Any more of this, and it's not going to be good. Got to learn to curb our appetites. Now, what's true of the body is also, in an analogous way, true of the soul. Uh, there are cravings that we have that we can't give free reign to. Uh, there, there, there are desires and appetites there, which if we consume them, will make, or too, consume too much of them, will make us sick. Here's the thing. We are born hungry. Uh, we're born needy. 
At the core of our being, there is a desperate need, a non-negotiable need, a need that won't go away. And the need is, is, is for a, a sense of being loved. It's, it's for a sense, you need a sense of feeling like you're significant, uh, worthwhile, and you need to feel secure in that. Now, we all need relationships with people uh, that, that, that make us feel loved and make us feel significant, make us feel secure. But there's a dimension of our soul, the neediness of our soul, that only God can meet. Only God can meet. Um, I often, if you've been around it for any length of time, you know that I, I beat up on St. Augustine quite often. Uh, don't mean to be mean or anything, but I think that most of the nonsense in Western theology, and I think there's a good bit of nonsense in it, is traceable back to him. But today, just to show that I'm a magnanimous person and, 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 and I, I don't just kind of write someone off because I disagree with them and I consider Augustine to be a brother in Christ, to show that, I'm going to give a positive quote from St. Augustine right now. And this isn't the first one. I did it about 18 years ago too, so there you go. So here's what he said. This is from his book, The uh, Confessions. A really interesting book written in the uh, 4th century, or 5th century actually, early 5th. And uh, it's, it's called The First Introspective Memoir in Western History. It's a, very, it's a very interesting book, though I disagree with a lot of the theology. He says this, Thou, speaking to God, Thou hast made us for Thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds rest in Thee. Our heart is restless until it finds rest in Thee. Brother Augustine, you nailed it. Man, that is so right. We've got a, a hole in our soul that's restless until... We find God, uh, and, and he brings rest to that soul because our soul was created for him. In fact, God created us with this, this, this neediness, this vacuum, this restlessness, if you will, precisely to function as a homing device to lead us back to him. Okay, pointing in that direction. Follow, follow the, the, the inner restlessness, the inner unfulfillment, that inner hunger, and it will lead you to God. Absolutely. And see, we're spiritually healthy to the degree that our homing device has led us to our source of life, and that is God, our creator. Uh, we're, we're, we're healthy to the degree that we're letting God meet the deepest needs in our heart. We're, we're spiritually healthy to the degree that we're learning how to feast on God. We're spiritually healthy to the degree that our innermost need for love and, and significance and security is found in our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We find fulfillment in that. Now, Unfortunately, um, we're born broken, and we're born in a broken world that is ruled by the cosmic deceiver. And the result of that is that our homing device, which is supposed to bring us true north to our creator, it gets, it gets disoriented, reoriented, misdirected. So the things that we still have that hunger there, but now if it's pointing, if it's not pointing at the creator, it's pointing at something else, and we think we're hungry for that. So you feel this restlessness, this emptiness, this unfulfillment. But instead of finding our life in God, we think to ourselves, gosh, you know, uh, if only I had that, this, or the other thing, I'd feel more fulfilled. You know, if only, if only I had a bigger house and a better car, maybe a, a, a boat like my neighbor Joe has. If only I was, uh, if only I had, was more compatible with my husband. If only I, I, I was the boss of my company. If only, if only, if only, if only I had more money, a bigger bank account or whatever. Well, then I'd be satisfied. And it never works. We hunger and thirst for those things. We chase after those things, but there's no fulfillment in that. Take uh, Joe Schmo. Uh, he's hungry, restless. And he buys into this American idea that, that you can actually get fulfillment by, through money and possessions and things like that. So he chases after that. And let's say he's a privileged guy, a lucky guy, got some things going for him. So he makes a million dollars. 
Is he satisfied? Well, for a little bit. But in all likelihood, that, 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 that restlessness will return. And if he still has his homing device pointed towards money, he goes from the one million and will now work tw- tw- just as hard to get 10 million. But that proves unsatisfying as well. So he works just as hard to get 100 million. And he'll be working just as hard to get a billion. Why? Because he's trying to scratch an itch in the core of his soul. He's trying to meet this need that only God can meet. But as long as he keeps on thinking that it's out there in the money and the possessions or whatever, he keeps striving for that. I, I did a little re- research on, on workaholic millionaires and billionaires, and there's a lot of them. Uh, I found this one article where this guy was saying, he was a, uh, he's a reporter, but he was invited over to this wealthy CEO of some big company, and uh, he and some friends, and they were spending a leisurely evening together. In the course of three hours in this leisurely evening, he says that he, this, this guy, he uh, wrote 18 emails and took six phone calls. And the time that they had actually talking to one another, they always talked about business. In fact, they came up with a new business model on, uh, for a certain company. At the end of the night, he says to the guy, uh, the CEO says to all of them, hey, thanks for joining me in a relaxing and leisurely evening. And the reporter's thinking, what, what are you talking about? That, that, that was all work. But see, that's all this guy knew. He was chasing after this. It's not about the money. I, wh- wh- why do you keep on working like this when you've got more money than you could spend in one lifetime? Well, the answer is it's not about the money. It's not about the possessions. He thinks it is, but it's not. What it's about is this need in the core of his being. Uh, and see, the truth is that you can have all the money in the world and you're not going to find permanent satisfaction. You can have all the fame, all, have all the possessions of the world, experience all the pleasures of the world, the comforts of the world. You can get everything that you think you want and it's not going to fill you. It's going to leave you in the end empty. Uh, what's happened is our homing devices have gotten hijacked and it causes, brings grief and unfulfillment on us. Uh, the biblical word for trying to meet that innermost need that only God can meet, the biblical word for, for trying to meet that by something else uh, other than God, the word is idolatry. Now, we, we often think of idols as these statues, you know, that pagans worship and stuff. And that certainly is an idol. It was common, most common idol, I suppose, in the ancient world. But an idol is anything that we try to use that's not God to play a God role in our life. Anytime something is scratching the itch that only God's supposed to scratch, that's an idol. Uh, And we worship it. Now, you may think to yourself, well, I I would never worship something in this created world uh, other, other than God. Paul talks about this in Romans 1 when he outlines idolatry. And he says, they, they, they turn from the creator to the cre- creation. And they start to worship things in the creation. Um, now you think, well, I, I would never worship something in the creation. And that's probably because you're thinking of worship as along the lines of what we just did, singing a song and, and praise and stuff like that. That's where, that. This is what worship is. But the truth is, is that worship is anything that you ascribe ultimate worth to and anything that you try to derive ultimate worth from. That is functionally your God, and that is what an idol is. And the thing is, anything can become an idol. Uh, any advantage that you might have, anything that makes you stand out a little bit, that can become an idol. Look how pretty you are, look how handsome you are. I always struggle with that one. Uh, you know, maybe you're good at throwing a football, you're good at dancing or whatever. It's fine to be good at those things. It's fine to be pretty and handsome. Uh, it's fine to even feel good about that, but don't 
It should never get to the point where that's what makes your life worth living. That's what makes you feel good. That's what makes you feel significant. No, that's supposed to be rooted in, 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 in God alone. Uh, sometimes people try to make, it, make, make an idol out of the tribe that you belong in, the nation that you belong in. Folks that are desperately hungry and don't have anything else going for them might decide, hey, it's the color of our skin. That's what makes it significant. It's superior to others. That can be an idol. That's your God. But it can also be a God fighting against those folks if you're deriving life from the fact that you're not like them and you're righteous. You see, anything can become an idol if we're trying to feed off of it. And if you get what you're striving for, you might not ever get it, and that's why we live with this anxiety and thinking that we're going to miss the show here if we don't get this. But even if you do get what you're striving for, People notice how pretty you are, how handsome you are, how good you throw a football. You get to the top of the CEO, you make the money or whatever. It feels good, it tastes good when, when you're at top. It's uh, like the sliders, man, they taste good going down. It feels good in that moment. Ah, oh, I'm king of the world. You got what you're striving for. You got your 100 million. You got your car, you got your boat. People recognize and respect you for your intelligence and how good you can sing. Even when you get that, it feels good, but it never, ever lasts. It just doesn't. So it's, it's just but for a moment. Yummy! But in fact, after a while, it leaves you you're empty again, and then you begin to get spiritually sick. If you keep devouring that idol, thinking that it's going to satisfy you, keep more and more of the idol, then I'll be satisfied. No, it makes you sick. You're devouring the equivalent of spiritual grease bombs. Your soul was never meant to devour idols any more than my 13-year-old stomach was meant to devour a bucket of grease. And it will make you sick. Uh, listen to what it says in Proverbs. Uh, here, uh, the wisdom of God is being portrayed as, or depicted as a, as a distinct person. And it's the wisdom of God who is speaking here. And the wisdom of God says, For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord, but those who miss me injure themselves. Those who, who, who don't hit the mark injure themselves, and all who hate me, the wisdom of God, love death. See, here's the thing. If you, find the, if you find God and therefore find God's wisdom and are getting life from that, well, you're going to be full. You'll find a fullness there. But if we miss that, um, we, we, we bring injury on ourselves. We're making ourselves sick. We're doing something unnatural. Our homing device is pointing in the wrong direction. And if we become resolved in that to the point where we're no longer even interested in ever finding the true source, if we come to despise that true source, well, this, the wisdom of God says that you love death. Now, here's why. God's the source of life. God's the source of life. And, and we find fullness in him. But the, to turn away from that is by definition death. It brings death. The first symptom of that is that you start to get sick. But if you get locked in in the other direction, well, it ultimately brings death. It's not that God's going to you know, come down and, and, and punish you because you, 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 you turned your homing device in the wrong direction. He's not going to come down and kill you because God's not a killer. But rather, the very act of turning away from God is an act of stepping toward death, by definition. The judgment of God isn't that he comes down and kills you. He doesn't have to do that. The judgment of God is when God has to let you go. You also find this in Romans 1. Uh, God, in his mercy, hangs on to us to say, don't go down that road, don't go around that road. Tries to keep us in check, pulling us back. His mercy gives us time for repentance, the Bible says. But if we become obstinate in rejecting that, there comes a point as you read in Romans 1, where God has to let you go. That's the judgment of God. 
Uh, throughout the Bible, you find that the punishment for sin is built into the sin itself. Sin is inevitably, sooner or later, self-punishing. It's a little bit like this. If you go and eat 12 White Castle burgers in one sitting, God doesn't have to come down and make your stomach upset and make you sick. No, the sliders do all the work for him. Uh, it, it, it's, it's built into the nature of Greece that if you consume large amounts of it, it will make you sick. Well, that's how it is with, with all sin. So if you're not getting your life from Christ, but you're trying to get it from this, that, or the other thing, all of them idols, well, you're in the process of making yourself sick. And if you continue down that road and get obstinate with it and, and, and ultimately end up hating God and go into eternity in that direction, well, the, real, the result is death. You forfeit the invitation to eternal life. And that is my understanding of what hell ultimately is. Okay, so with that background, let's now uh, consider the meaning of Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who are righteous, um, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When we hear the word righteous, most of us Western people, we think in moral categories. Uh, oh, that person's righteous. Now, now, they use it in all sorts of different words, like right. I don't know what it means today, but, 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 but the, the, the ordinary meaning of it in, in the West was a moral thing. Man, you're righteous, you're just, you're holy. The biblical concept of righteousness encompasses moral righteousness, but goes way beyond that. Uh, as with so many things in the Bible, uh, righteousness is a covenantal concept, covenantal concept. And you're covenantally righteous if you are keeping covenant with another in terms of the covenant. You're righteous if you're rightly related to your covenant partner or partners. So ultimately at the core of this concept of righteousness is right relatedness, right relatedness. So biblically speaking, you're righteous to the degree that you have a right relationship with God, a right relationship to yourself, a right relationship with others, and a right relationship to the earth and the animal kingdom. All that's involved in the concept of righteousness. You're righteous. If you're submitted to God and are getting your core need for, for life, uh, for your worth and significance, you're getting that from him. And when you're getting that from him, it empowers you to now have, begin to have a right relationship with yourself, with others, and with the earth and the animal kingdom. It's all right there. That relationship, that righteousness, being rightly related to God, yourself, others, and the earth and the animal kingdom, um, that is just what the kingdom of God looks like. When God is fully reigning in a human life, it looks like righteousness, rightly related to everything and even to yourself. Uh, so to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to hunger and thirst for the kingdom. It's to hunger and thirst for, the, for right relatedness in all aspects of your life. Uh, let me add this to the message. I mentioned at the very beginning of the series that the Sermon on the Mount isn't like a bunch of rules that we're supposed to try to carry out and obey in order to get to heaven. Not a bunch of hoops that we're supposed to jump through in order to try to get ourselves to heaven. If we could, if we could get rightly related with God on our own effort by obeying the rules on our own power, well, then we wouldn't need a Savior. Uh, I mentioned this in the second sermon uh, in this series, that the Sermon on the Mount— Rather than being a bunch of rules, the ethical thing, it actually is an expression of the person of Jesus Christ. You can't ever, you can't ever separate the Sermon on the Mount from the, the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount, it, it describes the life of Christ, and it describes the life of all those who are in Christ, who are following Christ. Uh, here's a quote that I gave several weeks ago, but I want to read it again because it's so good. It's from Stanley Hauerwas, who is one of the best Anabaptist theologians alive today in my opinion. And here's what he says. It makes all the difference who the proclaimer is, namely Jesus. 
the Jesus who proclaimed the inauguration of the new age. That's just the, the kingdom. The new age has come, the kingdom is here. And he does not just proclaim it, he is the inauguration of this kingdom, this, this new age. The message of the sermon cannot be separated, abstracted out from the messenger. If Jesus is the eschatological Messiah, that just means the Messiah of this new age, this, this, this kingdom, then he has made it possible through his death and resurrection for us to live in accordance with the life envisioned on the sermon on the mount. We can't do it on our own power, but in Christ, because of his death and resurrection, we can. We're empowered to. So then he says, the sermon, I love this line. The sermon is but the form of his life, and his life is the prism through which the sermon is refracted. <laughs> I love it. So, see, it's, it's, it's Jesus Christ, the Savior, who, who ultimately is our right relatedness with God. He is our right relatedness with God. He is our righteousness. Paul says that all the time. We have the righteousness of Christ. We have the right relatedness of Christ. Why? Because we're in Christ. And everything that's true of Christ now becomes true of us. And once we get, that's what gets us rightly related with God. So now we're getting our source of life from him. And that's what then empowers us through Christ to begin to be, practice right relatedness with ourselves, with others, and with the earth and the animal kingdom. This is why Jesus presents himself at times in the Gospels as the food of God, as, as the life that comes from God that we're, we're to be consuming. The most graphic place and the most interesting place where he did this is John chapter 6. Uh, he's talking to a, a Jewish audience here, and they're kind of obstinate. They're, 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 they're resisting him. And so he says this, starting with verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And then several verses later, he says, for truly I tell you, now I will warn you, this is kind of graphic. Uh, and, and to first century Jewish audience, and it'd be very offensive. And it might be offensive to some of you, uh, but, but just there's a point to it. So just hang in there. Unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food. It's not like those sliders. No, this is real food. And my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Bible, actually, you find the living God. Why? Because he's the source of all life. Just as the source of all life, my Father sent me, and I live because of my Father, so the one who sends, who feeds on me will live because of me. He's not saying you'll live biologically because of me, because they're already biologically alive. He's saying you'll find the fullness of life. You'll find that thing that meets that innermost need in, 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 in your soul. Now, Jews didn't believe in drinking blood at all. If Orthodox Jews to this day, they drain all the blood out of the, the, the meat when, before they eat it. Um, it goes back to Genesis chapter 9. So the idea of not only drinking blood, but drinking the blood of another human being and eating the flesh of another human being would have been absolutely revolting to them. Absolutely attention-grabbing for sure. And I think that's why Jesus uses this offensive graphic imagery. He's saying, in essence, I'm what you're hungry for. I'm what you're looking for. You go around trying to consume all the stuff over here, trying to get full, but you know what's making you sick and it never leaves you satisfied. The life that you're looking for is found in me. Consume me, is what he's saying. Consume me. And we can see the importance of this idea of consuming Jesus, even though it's shocking, but the, we see the importance of it in the fact that this is what Jesus shared at the last, these are the words Jesus shared at the, at, at the Last Supper. Take my flesh, take my blood. 
All that just represents the broken flesh and the shed blood represents the self-sacrificial love of God. The love that's embodied in, in Christ is the, the life that we're to consume. To consume Jesus means that you cultivate a relationship with him. Um, to consume Jesus means that you spend time basking in his love, letting him meet the needs in, in your life, letting him meet that core uh, yearning that you have for significance and, for, and, and to be loved and to feel secure. Uh, to, to consume Jesus means that we, you invite him into every nook and cranny of your life, the secret places, the ugly places, the dark places, the shameful places. You let him come in and shine light on that because that's how we get healed and that's how we're transformed. To get all your fullness from Christ, see, if we're, if we're consuming the real food that our soul was made for, not this unnatural stuff uh, that, 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 that's not aligned with the wisdom of God, if we're consuming that, see, that is what frees us from the needs to chase after idols. If you're full in Christ, you don't need to cling to anything, let alone try to wring life out of it. And that, folks, is the New Testament's definition of freedom. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed, John 8, 32. That's what freedom is. Most of the anxiety and despair and depression and struggles that people have is because they're clinging to stuff. And on some level, you know this is unnatural and you, we all know that it's gonna leave you sooner or later and that creates anxiety and all the rest. But when you can just let it go, now, now you're in a position of being free. It empowers us then to have a right relationship uh, with God, ourselves, uh, the earth, and the animal kingdom. This is the kingdom of God. This is what it looks like when God reigns in a human life. This is God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. It's righteousness. It's right relatedness. So we're going to turn to taking communion now. And communion is all about it's symbolically consuming the flesh and blood of, of, of Christ which is consuming the self-sacrificial love of God that we have in Christ. Um, when we take the, the elements, we're saying, uh, we open ourselves up to, to you, all of you. All of us are open to all of you. We trust you to be our, own, our source of life. We trust that what you did for us on the cross is true, and we're going to live according to that. We, 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 and, and so the, there's a taking in aspect of this, but there's also a pledge aspect, because in any covenant, there's two partners. Uh, we thank him for being trustworthy towards us, and then we pledge to be trustworthy towards him. That's how the covenant works. And so we're saying, I will, by the power of God, strive to live the way Jesus lived, to love the way Jesus loved. I will strive to make all my relationships right relationships. I will strive to guard myself against idols, and I hope now you can see how important that is. Because that, that idol craving is always there. We just have to have the power to say no to it. Um, we're now going to go into, a, our worship team is going to play uh, a, a, a reflective song. Uh, if you don't yet have the elements ready, this is the time to get those. But as, as, as Danny's playing, I'd like us to just ask this question and ask it honestly and help, ask the Spirit to help you answer it honestly. And the question is this, are you, are you righteous? Do you have the righteousness of Christ? Are you getting all the core needs of your soul met through your relationship with Christ? Um, is there anything in your relationships with others and with the world that would fall under the category of idolatry? Where you're, it's, too imp it's okay to feel good about stuff, but you don't use it to be the core of your life, to get all your significance from that. And, and then the ultimate question is this. When the Spirit reveals to you that, in fact, you have an idol, you, you, you're sucking too much life off of this idol, uh, whatever that, that may be, the question is, are you willing to surrender it? Will you bring it to the altar? Will you let it go? Um, one final thing I'll say is sometimes people wonder, how, you know, how, can I, how can I hunger and thirst for righteousness? Like either I'm hungry and thirsty or I'm not. How do you make yourself hungry and thirsty for, for right relatedness? And the answer is that you can't. 
But you see, what you can do is get rid of the thing that's keeping you from, from being hungry and thirsty. It's like this, if, if, if you devour a chocolate cake, you're not gonna be hungry for healthy food, a nice salad or something. Devouring the wrong food keeps you from being hungry for the right food, so also, if you're consuming idols, well, that, that, that dulls your appetite for the real food. Guard against idols, surrender the idols, and the hunger will, will rise naturally. You were born with that hunger, it's always been there, and it's only satisfied in Jesus Christ. Think about that as we now reflect and prepare our hearts for communion.
there's a reason why the Last Supper, Jesus had the Last Supper on the, the festival of Passover. Because the whole covenant that we're in is all about getting out of bondage, uh, getting free, and heading towards the promised land. Uh, the kingdom is about coming out from the bondage of our false gods. It all comes down to this, turning from false gods to the one true God to find true life. And God was willing to pay whatever price was necessary to have that happen. And so the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he uh, took the bread. It was common, ordinary bread. It was just set before them. This is what they were going to eat, or at least some of what they were going to eat. And he took it and he broke it. And he said, I've done this a million times and it still gets to me. This is my body, which is going to be broken for you. So whenever you come together and eat, do it in memory of me. Remember to consume me. Make me the healthy food of your life. Let's take the body of our Lord together. Lord, we invite you into every nook and cranny of our life. The dark places, the unhealthy places. Invite him in. Let him all the way in. He alone satisfies. And then he took the cup. He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. And see, this is what we're doing here. We're renewing our covenant vows here to trust and to be trustworthy. He said, this cup is, is the cup of the new and everlasting covenant for this is my blood, which is gonna be shed for you. So when you come together and drink, remember to be drinking the life, the self-sacrificial love that comes from Jesus Christ. Let's take it together. Amen. Father, we thank you for caring for us in our bondage. We thank you, God, for your love, which does not diminish when we turn away from you and chase after false gods. While we were chasing after false gods, you've always been chasing after us. And you found us. And you're in the process of freeing us. So, Lord, I pray that we could learn how learn together how we can be getting life from you and only from you. And then in your wisdom, teach us how to be rightly related, how to properly think about ourselves, others, the earth and the animal kingdom, how to properly treat ourselves, others, the earth and the animal kingdom. Help us to live with Jesus being the point of our story, the bread of life. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Uh, before I send you out, I just want to say, remember, uh, we have a muse cast that happens at four o'clock on Tuesdays, uh, and that's something, go, takes some, the message and goes a little further with it. Uh, if you are, are in need of anything, uh, have anything that can be prayed out, uh, over, um, we encourage you to, to go to our prayer Zoom rooms, and uh, someone would, be, would love to just pray with you there and, and, and uh, minister to you. And then finally, we have our, our gathering groups. Uh, and we encourage folks to be participating in that. A lot of things going on here. Church has not shut down. It never shuts down because we are the church. God bless you guys. Go out and be the church this week.